Hey everybody, welcome to session two of our judges study. I'm Nicole Hager and I am so excited about today's session. But before we jump in, I wanna go ahead and do a quick review of our last session in case anybody missed it. Um, last time we looked at the introduction of the book of Judges and we saw this downward spiral of the Israelites. They had just entered the promised land. They had this huge miraculous victory at Jericho and that was all in the book of Joshua, which is right before the book of Judges. And now in that introduction, they're gonna start taking and settling the territories that were assigned to them. So at first we saw that they mostly obeyed and then they started just kind of obeying and then really showing their lack of faith more and more. Um, they Basically by the end, they just completely failed to drive out the Canaanites. And we see that they're pretty much fully living with the Canaanites and worshiping their gods by the end of the introduction. So. We saw this pretty significant downward spiral during the introduction last week. And that brings us to where we are today, where we're gonna start looking at the individual cycle of judges um, and kind of what each of those look like. So today we're gonna tackle both the cycle of Ehud and the cycle of Deborah, so get ready. But before we kind of get into the cycle of Ehud, which is kind of the first main judge, um, we have kind of this really brief account of Othniel as judge. So let's look at that first. Um, this whole account of Othniel is only six verses long and it includes very little detail. So why is this? Well, most commentators agree that the account of Othniel is sort of like a template. It's kind of showing what the judge cycles are going to look like. And um, it's kind of showing in a way the ideal cycle in the book of Judges. Um, ideal might not be the best way to describe it because if you think about it, ideal would be that they never turned from God in the first place and just followed him happily. But um, really what this is saying is just that this is the cycle that we're going to see on repeat throughout the book of Judges. And the book, the account of Othniel, just gives us a picture of what that cycle should look like. So let's start with Othniel and see what his account says. So we're going to start in chapter 3 of the book of Judges in verse 7. It says, and the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rithashim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. And when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. Then the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So, first of all, I hope you notice that Othniel is not a new character for us. Who remembers where we read about him? Okay, that's right. He was the man last time who defeated Cariath Sephir and was given Caleb's daughter in marriage because of it. And I know we kind of look at that through the lenses of our own culture. We kind of talked about this last week and that doesn't look great to us because it kind of seems like, oh man, he's kind of using his daughter just for his own profit. But we kind of talked last week about how that's really not what was happening. Um, really, this is presented as a really good thing because in a, a culture of arranged marriages, what um, Caleb was doing was he was ensuring that he would find the best, the bravest, the most faithful, the strongest man for his wife, I mean, for his daughter. And so um, we see that Othniel is kind of presented as the best of the best. This is a really positive way. So when the Israelites read this account, he would have been an obvious first choice for a judge. Um, and then we see in this really brief account that has hardly any details that things are pretty clean in this cycle. Um, uh, we kind of used this as a template, so we kind of filled out in our homework what the steps of the cycle look like. And so I'm going to go ahead and go through them and see if this matches up what you got in your homework. So the cycle is as follows. Step one, the Israelites do evil and they follow other gods. Step two, the Lord's anger burns against them, and he sells them into the hands of their enemies, and they're oppressed. Step three, they cry out to the Lord. 
Step four, the Lord raises up a judge and gives the judge a spirit. Step five, the judge, in this case it's Othniel, has a victory over the oppressors. Step six, the land has rest. In this case, it's for 40 years. But what's the problem though? What's the last step of this cycle? The judge dies. And when he does, what happens? What do the people do? Well, again, they start doing evil on the side of the Lord. They start to serve other gods and they kind of go right back around to where they were at the beginning, like nothing ever happened. And it just makes you think, man, if they could only have a deliverer who never died, maybe they wouldn't fall into the cycle again and again. Wait a minute, do you see how even in this ideal cycle of deliverance, we're given this really awesome foreshadowing of Christ, who's going to come eventually and be the one true deliverer whose work didn't somehow erase when he dies. We kind of see that Othniel might be the least flawed judge in the book of Judges, but even he can't change the hearts of the Israelites. He, like the rest of the judges, shows us our need for Jesus, the deliverer whose death does not restart the cycle, but rather it completes it. Um, so that is the template, and that is kind of what we're going to see on repeat throughout the book of Judges. So let's look at the next judge, whose account is just a little bit messier than what we just read. We're going to start reading about Ehud. So he's kind of like the first main judge in this section. So we're going to start in chapter 12 and see what happens with Ehud. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. And the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud the son of Gerah the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Okay, so we're going to pause here because that kind of seems like a strange detail to include. Why would he tell us that he was left-handed? And what is the significance of that? Well, first of all, in our culture, being left-handed is kind of a neutral thing. Like, we don't think much about it. People are right-handed or left-handed, and that's that. But in that culture, the right hand was associated with a lot of positive things. Like, God's chosen one sits at his right hand. God swears by his right hand. Um, in general, the right hand just was this, like, it signified power and ability. Um, and then we see, like, if you kind of look at the original language, Judges 3.15 is really more accurately translated that Ehud was unable to use his right hand. So most commentators feel that he was kind of probably disabled or disfigured in some way. Um, he probably had a visible disability where he was unable to use his dominant right hand, the hand that most people fought with, the hand that most people carried their swords with. So again, while our culture wouldn't see this as anything that would affect your ability to lead, um, in the Israelite culture, people would have looked at him and assumed that he would be an ineffective leader. His sword-wielding hand was um, not usable, and so um, he would have been considered ineffective. But we see the Lord raises him up, and he has him bring up this tribute. Um, a tribute is basically kind of a large forced gift. Um, if you can, I even like looked this up just to make sure I knew exactly what I was talking about. The definition is it's kind of an excessive tax or rental or tariff imposed by a government or a sovereign um, lord or landlord. Um, it's an exorbitant charge levied by a person or group having the power of coercion. That's kind of from Webster's Dictionary. So this wasn't like this, like, hey, let's bring this nice gift to the people ruling us. Like, no, this was a forced gift and it was probably kind of, I mean, these rulers that were kind of over the Israelites at this time are probably already kind of, you know, bleeding them dry. And so they're kind of asking for... The, the best of their crops and everything like that. And so it's kind of they're already um, struggling and suffering and having to still give more and more. So that's kind of what this um, 
this tribute kind of was. So let's read on, pick up in verse 16. And Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. And all who attended him left him. Okay, so there's a few notable things here that we're going to look at. When Ehud made a sword, he bound it to his right thigh. Why is that? Well, he was left-handed and you would reach across to the opposite thigh to grab your weapon. So if you were getting searched as you enter the chink's chamber, which leg do you think the guards would have been trained to search? The left thigh, because most warriors were right-handed, especially people who were seen as a threat, they would have fought with their right hand and they would have had their weapon on their left thigh. So we're already kind of seeing that the fact that he's left-handed or possibly most likely had a disability on his right hand, that's what allows him to bring in the weapon that's going to even bring about the deliverance of his people. So already God has a plan for this um, left-handedness. So what else do we see? The text tells us that the king of Moab was a very fat man. So why tell us this? Well, this was a time that it was difficult to be overweight. This wasn't like our culture. They didn't have fast food on every corner. They weren't constantly trying fad diets to lose weight. Nobody there was asking if you've tried the keto diet. Like they were trying to stay alive. They were trying to gain weight. They worked really, really hard on the land just to be able to feed their families. There were whole periods of famine. And then what's more, they had this other government basically taking the best of their crops all the time. And so to be fat showed that this king profited greatly from the fruits of the Israelites' labor. This was probably not his first tribute. It was a sign of his oppression over them. Um, and then finally we see that Ehud, he turns back alone and then he asks to speak to the king. Um, when he tells the king that he has a secret, what does the king do? He sends all of his guards out. Like, why on earth would a king do that? Clearly, he did not see Ehud as a threat. He probably looked at his disabled right arm and just totally wrote him off as anyone that he should even worry about. So again, we see that his disability, the fact that he, that whatever it was that caused him to not be able to use his right hand or his right arm, that disability is the very thing that God used in order to place him in a position where he could bring about the deliverance of his people. Okay, so let's keep going and I'm warning you, the story is about to get graphic. <laughs> Verse 20. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into its belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked, and they said, He's only relieving himself in the cool room. And they waited until they became anxious. But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sariah. Okay. First of all, anyone who thinks that the Old Testament is boring clearly has not read about Ehud. What just happened here? First, it tells us that Ehud drives his sword into the king's belly, and then it says, and the refuse came out. Or most other translations probably say, and the dung came out. So what is this saying? Well, the Bible is basically telling us that poop came out. You heard me right. Like, this is talking about poop. 
So either the king pooped when he was being killed or he was stabbed in his intestines and that spilled out that way. But one way or another, there was poop. And why on earth would the Bible tell us that? Well, let's look at what happens next. Ehud leaves and locks the door as he does. And when the servants go back to the king, why don't they go in to check on him right away? What do they say? Well, they obviously smell the odor because they immediately assume that he is using the bathroom. They say he's relieving himself in the chamber. So in other words, they come to the door and they're like, ooh, do you guys smell that? Ooh, yeah, he's in the bathroom. Let's give him a minute. And what does that extra time allow Ehud to do? That's what allowed him to escape. They waited until there was no way the king would have still been using the bathroom before they finally went in and found him dead. So Ehud was able to escape and rally the rest of the Israelites to finish the job. So let's see what happens next. Verse 27. And it came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. So we just saw how God used an unlikely person to bring deliverance to his people. He used a man that was so unlikely that the enemy didn't even see him as a threat. And God used that very thing, the thing that made him not be perceived as a threat, to make him effective. So now, let's move on and we're going to come to um, another judge, Shamgar. And Shamgar is giving a whopping single verse. So let's read this single verse that we have about Shamgar. It says, verse 31, And after him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So what do we know about Shamgar? Not much, but one thing to note is the weapon that he used to defeat so many Philistines. Did anybody here knew, know what an ox goad was before studying this? I for one did not, so I looked it up. And if you looked it up too, I hope you noticed that it's not even a weapon. It's a tool for farming. So it's basically a long wooden tool about eight feet long, fitted with an iron spiker point at one end, and this was used to kind of spur on oxen as they pulled a plow or a cart. And this is really significant because it indicates that if this is what their judge had to use as a weapon, the person who was leading them into battle, then they were so severely oppressed that they did not have any weapons among them. They were completely disarmed of actual weapons. And this is the same Israelites who just a chapter before were battling great battles. And so back with Ehud, we saw that Ehud was not the most likely choice in what would have been the Israelites' opinion because he was left-handed, most likely from some sort of disfigurement or disability. But here we see that Shamgar was a judge with a very unlikely weapon. When the Israelites pictured the man who would deliver them this time, they probably pictured someone equipped with pretty fierce weapons. But it turns out, as we see with Shamgar, that the weapon didn't matter. What mattered was having God on his side. So that just makes us have to ask, well, what about us? What are the things that we have felt God calling us to do but felt ill-equipped for? Um, have you ever found yourself thinking, oh, I can't do that, God. Somebody else would be so better at that than me. Or I can't do that. I don't have the right, you know, equipment or tools or I'm just not built for that. Um, maybe you're not even open to the idea that God might actually be calling you to something at all. But how often do we look at the tax, tasks that God gives us and say to him, not me, I'm not cut out for that. Remember, 
God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And oftentimes it's those very things that make us feel unfit or incapable that they're the very things that God's going to use in and through us. So that brings me to our next judge, Deborah. The story of Deborah is given to us in two chapters. The first chapter is going to give us kind of the historical account of what happened. And then the second chapter is going to switch genres and it's going to give us some poetry. We're going to see a song in which the account we just read is celebrated. Does that sound familiar? So like last time when we kind of got two accounts in different ways, we're going to get something from the song that we didn't get in the narrative. Um, But before we dive in, I do want to spend just a few minutes talking about the significance that Deborah is a woman judge. This is a really big deal, and it's not something that we really see throughout the Bible. We don't see women in positions of leadership like this. And so because of that, commentators disagree quite a bit on how to interpret this. Um, On one extreme, there's a lot of people who would claim that the only reason Deborah was a judge was that there was just no qualified or willing men around. That's just how bad it was. The Israelites were just kind of had spiraled so far that there were no good men around, so God had to resort to using a woman. They would say that she wasn't God's first choice, but God had to resort to using her because men were so worthless that there just wasn't one to use. So that's the one extreme. On the other extreme, there are people who kind of look at this and say, wow, Deborah's proof that anything a man can do, a woman can do as well. And this account in Judges really proves that gender is nothing but a social construct. Men and women are exactly the same. So those are kind of the two extremes that people kind of go to when they look at the fact that Deborah was a woman judge. My personal opinion is that both of these arguments are wrong, and I'm going to tell you why. So Let's first look at this idea that God would only use Deborah because there were no capable or willing men around. I was actually taught this position when I was younger, as though it was like the only possible interpretation. And sadly, since then, I've heard stories of women who took this idea even farther, and they truly believed that if God used them in any way in ministry, then they were just God's second best and second choice, and God would have preferred to use a man, and there must not have been any willing men around. And this is not at all biblical. We see God using women in in scriptures all the time. Um, So this view of Deborah being kind of God's second choice, it's a commonly taught one, but let's think about it a little bit. If you look at who God chooses to use to do his will throughout the entire Old and New Testament, how many of those people were men that you would consider qualified? We see throughout scripture that God uses those who are weak and underqualified so that his glory can shine through. We just saw it in Ehud and Shamgar even. We don't see this pattern in scripture of God only using the strong and the brave. He doesn't just use good men, although he does sometimes. We also see stories of him using the weak and the broken. We see him using people who are sinful and unfaithful, and we even see him using people who rebel against him because he changes their hearts and brings them back into right relationship with them. So then was was God then too incapable here to raise up a man leader if that's what God really wanted? What does it say about our belief in God if we claim that his design is to have only men in roles of leadership, but then he can't even raise up a man, so he has to go against his own design? I feel like to make that claim not only strips God of power because it's saying he wasn't able to change a single man's heart to lead, but it also strips him of integrity because it claims he would go against his original design for what men and women were made for. So to say the account of Deborah that God only used her as second choice because no good men were around, I think that's a pretty huge statement to make. And it seems like if that were a firm truth or doctrine that we were supposed to interpret, the text would say something to back it up. 
but we don't see any such claim in the book of Judges. We actually see several references to good men who did lead in many ways when we look at the text, and it clearly states that she's called by God to perform the role she's in. She's never in all of scripture spoken of in a negative light, and she's also not only a judge, but she's also a prophet, and that's not true of most of the other judges. So if she was kind of B-team, then why would God gift her in this extra way by making her a prophet also that the male judges weren't gifted? And so that's kind of why I don't really see the argument that Deborah was God's second choice because there were no good men around to be a valid argument. But what about the other extreme? So does this then mean that gender is just a social construct? No, I don't think that we can take the account of Deborah to make that case either. Because if you'll notice, there's some big differences in how Deborah carries out her role of judge versus how the rest of the judges did it. The most significant of which is that Deborah was not a warrior. Every other judge both ruled as well as fought. Deborah rules, but she also knows when to delegate and she has Barak lead the army into the battle. So while we see her leading with the same authority and the same blessing from God, we see that she does it not as a warrior like the male judges before and after her. She leads the Israelite nation, but she does not lead the army. So she has the same authority and the power as the male judges, but she is built differently and so she leads differently. Now that's not to say that women can't fight wars or anything like that, and we could go into so much more on just gender roles and what women can and can't do, but that's that's another talk for another day, um, and I really wanna make sure that we give the text the attention it deserves. Um, but I just wanted to kind of point out those two pitfalls that people sometimes fall in. But now I wanna read the text and the account of Deborah, and I want you to decide for yourself where you think the text points us as far as God's view of women. So let's dive in. We're gonna start reading chapter four, starting in verse one. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Okay, so remember those two names. Jabin is the king and Sisera is the commander of his army. These are the two bad guys here. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots. And he oppressed the sons of Israel several, um, severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Ebenoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabar, and take with you ten thousand men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor should not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So we see here... Deborah's her prophetess. She summons Barak, the leader of the kind of the army, and she's kind of telling him, hey, you're going to be, the Lord has told you, go here, um, and I'm going to draw out to you, Sisera, the commander of the army, and then Barak says, I'm only going to go if you go with me. So I kind of asked you guys in your homework what you thought of Barak's response here. Was he showing respect to Deborah by wanting her to come with him, or was he showing weakness and a lack of faith by not wanting to go by himself? This is another thing that many people disagree on and is often directly tied to their opinions of whether Deborah was God's first choice for judge or not. So those people who kind of see it as a lack of faith, they often use this as evidence that, see, there's no good men around. Brock wouldn't even go by himself. He was, he didn't have faith. 
So they see Deborah's following statement that the honor is going to go to a woman and not Barack as sort of a punishment for his unwillingness to go alone. So that's one view. The other view, which is the one that I agree with, is that Barack was actually showing great faith in God. If Deborah is God's chosen mouthpiece and she's the one speaking his will, why wouldn't he want her with him to ensure that he was following God's will? So in asking her to go with him, he's basically saying, hey, you are God's mouthpiece and I want to be sure I am listening to God as closely as possible every step of the way. I need God with me. I want God with me. And so since you're his mouthpiece, if I'm going to do this, you got to come because I need God with me. To me, that's showing a great um, faithfulness to want to be doing God's will and hearing God's voice. You'll also notice in verse 9 that it doesn't say because you want me to come or because of your lack of faith that the honor is going to go to a woman. Um, it says that a woman's going to get the glory, but it never claims that that's a punishment for his action. The Hebrew for the verse can kind of more accurately be translated on the expedition you are undertaking, the honor will not be yours. And this kind of reads more like a prophetic statement rather than a rebuke from Deborah. And let's not forget, Deborah was a prophet as well as a judge. And that's kind of what prophets do. They kind of make these statements of what's gonna happen. And then this is really important. What does Barak do in response? Does he get upset? Does he drag his feet? No, he goes and does it anyway. We're gonna see in a minute that he does this in the face of overwhelming odds, and he knows full well he's not gonna get the glory at all, but he does it anyway. To me, that does not sound like the action of a faithless, weak man. To me, that sounds like a faithful, strong, and humble man who cares more about following God's direction and hearing God's voice than he does about receiving glory for himself. So. That's kind of the views of Barack, and you know where I fall. Um, but think about, where do you think that you fall? Um, so let's read on. Pick it up in verse 10. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites, the son of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pinched his tent, pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Okay, just real quick, remember who the Kenites were. They were not Israelites, but they were friends of the Israelites, and they came and settled in Canaan along with the Israelites. So we see here there's this guy named Heber. He's a Kenite, and he's, for one reason or another, they don't tell us why, but he has separated himself from the rest of the Kenites. Um, so he's no longer kind of living among his people. Um, that could be significant or it could be random, um, but I kind of have a feeling that maybe there's more to that. Um, so let's read on and see why this is so significant that he is not living with his people. 12. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabar. And Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabar with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the enemy of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazar and the house of Heber the Kenite. Okay, pause again. We see here that Sisera had 900 iron chariots. What do we remember from last week about iron chariots? They were terrifying to be up against. 
Barack was facing an army here that from a human perspective would have been absolutely impossible to defeat. But he does it anyway. And what happens? We see that Sisera here ends up running away on foot. So where did his chariot go? Well, if we cheat a little bit and we look ahead to chapter 5, we're going to see in chapter 5 verse 4 as well as chapter 5 verse 21 that the Lord sent rain. Where were the chariots? Well, here in verse 413, we see that they were by the river Kishon. Now, Sisera was a really experienced army commander, and he would have known never to bring 900 chariots to a riverbed if there was any chance of rain. So this would have had to have been the dry season. But God shows up and miraculously sends a torrent of rain when no rain was in sight. Like he suddenly brings this torrent of rain and it causes the river to overflow and it renders Sisera's chariots useless. So the chariots are stuck in the mud or the muck or they're being swept away by the river and now the Israelites have the advantage and Barak is able to defeat the army. But Sisera gets away and runs. So this brings us back to the family of Heber. Why would Sisera have felt safe enough to hide in Heber's home when Jael, his wife, invites him in? Well, in verse 17, it says there is peace between the king Jabin and Jael's husband Heber. So Sisera is thinking, oh, this key knight here, we've got some sort of peace treaty with him. They are kind of on our side. So he's seeing them as being on their side. So again, we see here that not only Heber had moved away from his people, but there was peace between him and the enemy. So what does Heber's wife do? Let's read on, starting in verse 18. And Jael went to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her and into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him again. And he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here, that you shall say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. So what we're seeing here is she kind of tells him, hey, come on in. Like, I'll protect you. He asks for water because he's exhausted. What does she give him? She gives him milk. Why do you think she gives him milk? Well, what do you give kids when they're tired? Milk to help them sleep. So she's trying already to make him sleepy. And then once he falls asleep, she seizes the opportunity and she kills him. So I want to point out the significance of what she has done here. Because not only has she, a woman, played a huge part in delivering the Israelites from their oppressors, she did it, one, with a common everyday tool that any woman would have had. Because the role of setting up the tents was a woman's job. So every woman would have had tent pegs and a hammer. Um, but also, too, she did it in what looks like direct opposition to what her husband would have done. Because we see that her husband made peace with this enemy. Why else would this enemy have trusted Jail to hide him? Her husband physically moved their home away from their own people. And so they, she was seen as a safe place um, because of what her husband had done. So in this culture and at this time, it was a pretty big deal for her to act apart from her husband's will. So what is she doing here? She is choosing God over her husband. She's showing strength here in more ways than one for sure. So let's move on. Verse 22. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And, she, and he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel. And the hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. So we saw that after that they are able to defeat the rest of um, the army 
And we saw in this chapter that there's not just one clear deliverer in this judge cycle. There's three. Deborah, Barak, and Jael all operate together as deliverer of the Israelites. And we also in this chapter see that there's two women who are both in very different positions. Deborah has great authority, and Jael is a regular woman who's not even an Israelite. She's a Kenite, so she's kind of an outsider. Yet God uses them both in mighty and powerful ways, and they both demonstrate extreme faith in how they follow God. And I'm guessing everybody in here is going to fall somewhere in how they see themselves. If you relate more to Deborah and see yourself as having these strong leadership giftings, or if you relate more to Jael or somewhere in between, um, I hope this account shows you that God is calling you to something. I don't know what. I'm guessing it probably doesn't involve a tent peg, but he is calling you to something. And that something is going to be for his purposes, not your purposes, not the world's purposes. But he uses women who are leaders like Deborah and women who are common like Jael to do his purposes. It doesn't matter your gifting. It doesn't matter your status. What matters is, are you going to obey when he calls you to do something? Are you going to step up with that same faith that these women didn't say yes to God? I'm going to follow wherever you lead. Um, and like Barack, are you willing to follow when God calls you to do something that seems impossible and then you're not going to get any recognition for? I know a lot of women struggle with what they think the Bible says about women, and I hope it's becoming clear that the Bible does not present women as lesser than. Um, did they have different obstacles than men? Absolutely. We still do it in different ways. Were they maybe treated poorly in their culture? Absolutely. But that's not a reflection of how God would want them to be treated. The Bible in no way shows women having any less value than men. And it's clear that God uses women as well as him using men to achieve his purposes. I also want to take a minute just to acknowledge that a lot of people really struggle with how Jael as well as Ehud achieved their victories. Many people look at the fact that they were both deceitful and they both used trickery to make their enemy feel safe before murdering them. And they look at that and they say, oh man, these people were evil. They're bad people. These are bad examples. Um, but then we're going to see in chapter 5 in just a minute that the Bible itself praises Jael for her actions. And sometimes that can be hard for us to swallow. Um, so in your homework, I had you think about how the Israelites would have felt about this. Um, a lot of times we're looking at things through our own lenses of our own experience and our own culture and what we life we have lived. And it's hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who would have been living this and the original intended audience, which was the Israelites. And so the best example I could think of is, um, you know, we, we've never faced this kind of oppression in our lifetime. Um, our parents have probably never faced this kind of oppression in their lifetime. Um, but we do have in history, kind of on a more recent level, the Holocaust, which we would all agree is pretty horrific. Um, and that's a little bit easier for us to picture because we have all this imagery from photographs and there's been so many movies made about it that it's easy for us to kind of really see the evil that was going on in the Holocaust and um, to really kind of put ourselves in the position of what maybe a concentration camp prisoner would have would have felt or been experiencing. So just imagine that if there was a concentration camp and somebody came along and was able to kill the person who was leading the concentration camp and they had to use trickery and deceit to do it, but they killed that leader. And then because of that, through a chain of events, all of the people in the concentration camp were allowed to go free and go back to, to living a full life. Do you think that the people in that concentration camp would have criticized the person who freed them? 
Absolutely not. We would not, from the outside, we would not criticize that person. We would, they would be a hero. We would have celebrated what they did because we would have seen the evil that was being done and we would have wanted justice. We would have wanted those people to be freed from that bondage, to be freed from the evils being done to them. And that's how the Israelites, the original intended audience of this book, would have read these stories. They would not have looked at this and said, wow, I can't believe Ehud did this. Like, what a, what a, you know, what a sleazy guy or whatever. No, they would have seen him as a hero. And the same with Jael. They would have seen them as heroes because of what they did for them, how they freed them from such awful oppression. So now let's go ahead and move on um, to chapter five. And we're going to see the song of Deborah here. And as I read, I want you to notice in chapter four, we read the account of what happened. And in chapter five, we're going to see Deborah giving all of the credit to God for everything. Um, we just kind of read this account of God using three people to deliver Israel. And then now in chapter five, Deborah's going to point us back to who the true deliverer, the one true deliverer of the story is, and that's God. So let's start in verse one, chapter five. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, But the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. I to the Lord I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when thou didst go out from Seir, when thou didst march from the fields of Edom, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. So notice two things here. First, Deborah recognizes that the leaders in various parts of Israel led. She's saying that the leaders led in Israel, that the people stepped up, bless the Lord. So already again, that's still triggering in my mind. There were people willing to lead. There were, there were men probably leading in battle. And so to say that there were no good men around who were willing to step up, um, I feel like that's kind of ignoring all of the men who did step up to lead all of these um, battles. And then second, Deborah's giving all the credit to God for the victory here. She's thanking him here for sending this rain that rendered the iron chariots useless. So again, we saw the um, things that happened in chapter four. Now Deborah's telling us what was going on spiritually behind the scenes. She is recognizing what God did and how God sent the rain. God was the true deliverer. Okay, let's move on. Verse six. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and travelers went by roundabout ways. The peasantry ceased, they ceased in Israel, until I, Deborah, arose, until I rose, a mother in Israel. New gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, and you who sit on rich carpets, and you who travel the road, sing. At the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places, where they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds for his peasantry in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. So here we see that the oppression at that time was so bad that there were no weapons. And the Israelites didn't even feel safe to travel the roads. But despite this, the people volunteered to lead and fight. And again, whose righteous deeds are they wanting to recount? the Lord's. Again, he has given all the credit. They're not recounting the righteous deeds of these three people who delivered them. They're recounting the right. Deborah is reminding them it's the Lord who did it. We are going to recount the Lord and his righteous deeds. So um, let's pick it back up in verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and take away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as warriors. 
From Ephraim, those whose root is an Amalek came down, following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Machir, commanders came down, and from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the divisions of Reuben there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds, to hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead remained across the Jordan, and why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even to death, and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. Okay, so what is she saying about all these different leaders and people groups? Well, Deborah is recognizing all of the tribes and the leaders who followed her in Barak. So again, we see that there were several tribes that did have leaderships, people who stepped forward with no weapons, people who were, you know, we just saw that it was so bad that they were afraid to even be traveling on the streets, but they still, these leaders still led their men and their people into battle. And so she is praising them for their courage and basically doing something that was really, really hard. This was not a a people who was really equipped for battle and they're coming and doing it anyway. We also see in the section that some did not come and join them to battle. Um, she kind of calls out the tribes of Reuben and Gilead and Dan and Asher because they did not join in. She kind of says they stayed home and did nothing. Um, and then she finishes out by really honoring the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali because they're given the highest praise because they were willing to risk their lives on the battlefield. So they must have just kind of really, um, above all the others, kind of taken the, the greatest risk in however this battle was fought. So we kind of see this range and how the people participated. Um, 19. The kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanak, near the waters of Megiddo, they took no plunder in silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The innocent, or the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. O my soul, march on with strength. Then the horse's hooves beat from the dashing, the dashing of this valiant steeds. Curse Marah, said the angel of the Lord. Utterly curse its inhabitants, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. So again, we see that God is kind of giving full credit to God for leading them to victory. Um, And then she's really kind of um, cursing some of the people who did not help at all. Um, They did not come to the help of the Lord. And so I feel like, um, again, we can kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites and there's all these different tribes and in in our lives like are we going to be like the tribes who step forward when things seem impossible and say we're going to be a part of what God is doing and play our part whatever that is or are we going to be like the tribes who sit home and do nothing and kind of miss out on being a part of God's story and what God is doing um okay let's finish it out by reading this last section and then we're going to really kind of talk a lot about this section because I think there's a lot here Verse 24, most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a magnificent bowl, she brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera, she smashed his head and she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet, he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell dead. Out of the window, she looked and lamented, the mother of Sisera through the lattice. Why does his chariot delay in coming? Why do the hoofbeats of his chariots tarry? Her wise princesses would answer. Indeed, she repeats the words to herself. Are they not finding? Are they not dividing the spoil? A maiden, two maidens for every warrior. To Sisera, a spoil of dyed work. A spoil of dyed work embroidered. Dyed work of double embroidery on the neck of the spoiler. Thus let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was undisturbed for forty years. So... 
let's really look at what the song is saying here. First, we see that Jael is praised for her actions. She's not rebuked for using trickery, but she's a hero, kind of like we talked about earlier. Um, and then we see in this song, the Israelites are imagining the mother of Sisera, the commander of the army that was just killed. This is the enemy, his mother. They're imagining that she is wondering why her son hasn't come home yet. And we learn a little bit about what kind of man Sisera was here because verse 30 says, are they not dividing the spoil, a maiden, two maidens for every warrior? Basically, what we're seeing here is that Sisera is a leader who likes to rape and enslave women. Kind of some of the um, original language here kind of points to like, um, I mean, my translation says maiden, but the original like translation, the original language has more to do with like kind of a sex slave. Um, and so the Israelites are imagining in the song that Sisera's mother would have been worried that he hadn't returned yet, but the women around here were basically saying, you know him, he's just dividing the spoil and taking his time with the women. And the fact that this is what they assumed the mother would be thinking shows that it probably would have been pretty consistent with just the way he led in general. Um, a lot of commentators refer, refer to his oppression over Israel as being seen in how terribly he treated women. So how fitting and how ironic is it then that it'd be not just one, but two women who would bring about his death? And even more so, they brought it about with a common woman's household object. This would have been such a humiliating death for a warrior, especially for the leader of an entire army. I don't think that we really get that um, because we don't live in this culture, but that would have been so humiliating to have that be your death if you're the leader of an army. So this man, who was known for humiliating women through rape and enslavement, died the most humiliating death a warrior could have died at the hands of a woman. Talk about poetic justice. Now look at verse 27 and notice this repetition of Sisera laying between her feet. Um, this makes me think of several things. First of all, the feet are kind of the most dirty, lowly part of a person. We kind of see a lot in the New Testament about the importance of washing feet um, because they wore sandals and their feet were always dirty. So. Um, we kind of see this imagery of this role reversal because he was once towering over the Israelites and towering over women as he abused them. And now who's towering over who? She's the one towering as he lays dead at her feet. Um, and so kind of think about the other imagery that this also conjures. Remember, this guy was a rapist. And I'm going to steal a line from Jen Wilkin here because she said it so well. Where does it say that he lies dead? Between her feet. Where does the song imagine his mother assuming he is? Between the feet of a woman. This is no accident. All of this imagery is really driving home the point that God did not let Sisera's abuse of Israel, and particularly his abuse of women, go unpunished. Rather, that abuse comes back to him full circle. And that also kind of brings us back to the question we talked about at the beginning. Was the fact that Sisera was killed by a woman and a woman's going to get the honor, was that simply because Barak was getting punished because he didn't have enough faith to go by himself? I don't think so. I think that that robs the text of all of this depth of meaning. Um, I mean, maybe this was God's plan in order to show his love for women. Women were being severely oppressed by a man who raped and enslaved them. And then God uses two women to bring deliverance to the Israelites from this torture. We see here God is both protecting women and he's also using women for his purposes. Do you not see the high value on women shown to us here? The Bible is pro-women. The Old Testament is pro-woman. The culture at the time may not have always been, but God is. And we see that clearly through this account of Deborah. So we went over a lot today. 
We've seen today that God chose an unlikely judge in Ehud because of his disability. And that very disability that would have made the Israelites write him off was exactly what God used to bring deliverance to his people. We also saw that he gave Shamgar victory with a super unlikely weapon, but the weapon didn't matter. Only God being with him mattered. And then we saw that God chose an unlikely judge in Deborah because she was a woman, and in that culture, women were not treated with the same value as men. God uses the unqualified, he uses the ill-equipped, and he uses the unlikely. And he wants to use you in some way for his purposes. Will you follow him? Pray with me. Dear God, thank you so much for the book of Judges. And thank you so much for these accounts of these judges that we read today and for all of the wisdom that you give us through the text, Lord, through your word. Um, thank you that you give us, um, that you use us, Lord. Thank you that you use, let any of us be a part of your purposes here on earth. What an honor that we are so undeserving of. And God, so often um, we're so caught up in just our own lives and in the world and what the world can offer us that we fail to see the ways that you're calling us to more, that you're calling us to something eternal, that you're calling us to be a part of your plan and what you're doing. God, I pray that we would be able to look at our lives and say, these are the things that happened but this is what God was doing behind and through it all, the same way we saw that in chapter 5, Lord. I pray that we would have that same view of our own life, that it, we wouldn't have just a chapter 4 understanding of what we did and what happened around us, but I pray that we would have a chapter 5 understanding of our lives where we see that your hand was in it and using us in different ways, and I pray that we would be um, um, willing to follow you wherever you lead and that we would have hearts that desire to be a part of your purposes here on earth. Um, it's in your name we pray. Amen.